0: One of the devices in the film was to actually use the archival footage of Eichmann in trial, because that amazingly was all videoed. And before we go to a clip that shows both uh, your dramatic film,
1: Mm -hmm. but with the actual archival footage of Eichmann, so you have no one playing Eichmann, he is in a sense, playing himself. Talk about that decision, Marguerite. I saw a long time before I knew that I will make a film about Hanarend, I saw The Specialist, Israeli uh, documentary. That was only half, one hour and a half, only the trial. And, and he followed the line of Hanarend and he said it in the beginning. So that—when we started to write the script with Pam Katz, I immediately told her, we have to look it up again, and we have to go with— this material. And so we already, during we wrote, we already chose some of the clips, let's say, some of the acts. And then, when I started to, to, to make the film, I saw much more material, and I chose also other materials that was not in the specialist. But for me, it was from the beginning, totally clear that I had to use this. Because to put an actor in, the spectator only would have looked at him, oh, he's so brilliant, he's uh, oh, fantastic. Fantastic, how he did it and so and you you they, they will admire the actor and not see the mediocrity of the men mm-hmm. And so that was my point to see the mediocrity to go with an hour to look at him and to to get the same thought out of him Hello and welcome to the super
2: 70 podcast episode 33.2 the specialist Actually, the name of the episode is The Specialist, Hannah Arendt, and the Banality of Evil, but I couldn't fit that within the limited time frame I had. A few months ago, I sent my friend Dave Kinneman Hannah Arendt's famous book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a study in the banality of evil. Dave became so engrossed in Arendt's history of the Holocaust and her philosophy of murder that I sent him an Israeli documentary of the trial called The Specialist by Director Eyal Sivan. Using original footage of the trial, Sivan reconstructs Arendt's argument of why the trial was a failure, though it still rendered justice. And through Sivan's work, he reconstructs Arendt's thought process and her theory of why the show occurred. Join Dave and I as we sift through the darkest part of the 20th century using Sivan's sly masterpiece of truth and Arendt's arresting idea that the worst mass murderers use droll paperwork instead of bullets.
3: Anyway, I'm going to get to the documentaries. The Eichmann documentary is fantastic. What really moved me, though, that I'm going to see again and again is The Eichmann Trial.
2: Oh, The Specialist. Specialist.
3: Oh, Yeah, it was a specialist.
2: Specialist, yeah.
3: I'm thinking of Hannah's book. Then after I was done watching it, I started throwing darts at documentaries about Nazi Germany and Mossad and and such with that. I remember what you said, that you have this romantic notion that if you were to repeat your young adulthood, that one of the things you would like to do is work for the Mossad. You mentioned that on Monday.
2: Well, um, the IDF, their army, the Israeli army, yeah. I'm, I'm nearly nearly uh, talented enough or have as much motivation or, or physically ever was in shape enough to be in the Mossad.
4: But please continue.
3: Because they were talking about how they recruited people and how they formed it and stuff. But that went, oh, OK, OK. And one of the documentaries I watched after that was the context of this hostility between the European Jews migrating to Israel and the Israelis that were already there. That's like what Hannah was talking about. It's this dirty laundry. The Jews don't want to be shared, but yet it was profound. Hannah's book about Eichmann, now after seeing the video or the uh, documentary, I'm thinking I'm going to reread that soon. Oh, yeah, specialist. It's like, oh, okay. I understand better where she's sitting there taking copious notes, checking as to what's going on. I understand why the length of the trial occurred with that i also understand how from the documentary better than i did in the book how the prosecution at times were creating this case creating the evidence yes they have a dammy but we've got to do this by law how are we going to do it we're going to get a person from here 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 and here to testify oh shit i mean
2: there's lots of things uh, that arent brings up in her book that nobody wants to talk about and i find it yeah. absolutely shocking I mean, first of all, they also ignore some very important things that help her argument that are absolutely true. Like in the first sentence of the first paragraph of the first chapter of her book, she praises the judges. and She says, these these are men of confidence and men of will and men of knowledge who are sitting in judgment of Eichmann. And she praised them because they had to wade through all of Gideon Hauser's bullshit. The prosecution brought up bullshit after bullshit after bullshit. That trial was 154 days, and it could have been 25. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've read the transcripts. I've probably, in the first 30, 35 days of the transcripts, I can't believe some of the. I mean, there's a guy testifying for the first day for the um, uh, the, the history of the Jews to the 20th century. And then they spend, like, the second day talking about uh, how the Jews were treated in the 20th century. What the fuck does that have to do with Eichmann uh, sending trains of Jews to the gas chambers? Which, by the way, is, is not under contest from anyone, especially Eichmann. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, was, it was very specific when she said this. Gideon Hauser was there because David Ben-Gurion wanted him there. And he was speaking on behalf of the Israeli state. And they were out for his blood. And Arendt said, this is not justice. And that was, that was one of her points. This is a lynch mob. This is not justice. The three judges who sat up there did their sole best to rein in the unbelievable circus that they had been a, a appointed to, to, to undersee, this three-ring circus, actually get down to the truth. And the truth is, just like a lot of things, including, uh, you know, there's this very interesting person uh, on YouTube talking on behalf of Yad Vashem about how the banality evil is bullshit. Eichmann
5: and his colleagues, first thing must be said, were anti Semites. Contrary to what Khan Arendt would have liked us believe, they were anti Semites long before they were SS officers. Almost every single one of them reached or became members of the system. Uh, in the late uh, 1920s. In some cases most of them in the early 1930s, the the last of them in the mid 1930s, they entered the system because they wanted to be in that part of the system. You did not become an SS officer without being committed to what the SS was about. And uh, in the case of many of them, in the case of Eichmann, there's no doubt about this, they joined the SS even before they were officers, among other things, because the the ferocious anti-Semitism of the SS and of the Nazis appealed to them. But let's look at the actions of the bureaucrats, Eichmann and the people around him. The first thing you have to say about him is that although they were primarily bureaucrats who worked behind desks in offices, most of them sooner or later often repeatedly did come into contact with living Jews who were being persecuted and sent to their deaths. Uh, In Berlin there uh, they they participated in rounding up the Jews of Berlin. Uh, In France, in Holland, in Greece, in, in, in Slovakia, wherever it was they perhaps were not the people running the deportations but they did uh, have to, they, they were the formulators of how it was done and they did have to be there to make certain it was happening correctly and if it was not happening correctly they had to figure out better ways of doing it. So they were there. So the first thing that has to be said is that Eichmann and his colleagues were first and foremost bureaucrats but they were also physically there watching the Jews, perhaps not being murdered, but they watched watching the Jews being deported which was a terrifying thing for the Jews and you couldn't say that they didn't realize that this was evil well this was this was something that was that was very painful for the Jews that's the first thing the second thing is that uh, one of the uh, one of the things that they engaged in Eichmann and his and his colleagues was to convince other organizations this is this is what needed to be done in Germany this was no major problem in total contradiction to what Hannah Arendt said Eichmann personally and the men around him In order to go about their jobs over a period of years, and they were doing this job for years, in order to successfully round up the Jews, uh, detach them from their society, and deport them to their deaths, they had to surmount endless hurdles, bureaucratic hurdles, political hurdles, and other hurdles, where there were things slowing down the process. And their job was to speed up the process, which means that they were fully conscious of what they were doing. They were fully conscious of the fact that there were people objecting them. And the reason they were doing what they were doing, and they said so themselves, among themselves often, was that the Jew was the archenemy and the Jew had to be destroyed. Finally, in late stages of the war, there were even rare cases where it, the documentation shows that even among Eichmann's closest colleagues, there were those among them, as uh, defeat approached, who expressed their apprehension of what would happen to them after the war, because, as they said very clearly, after what we have done to the Jews, uh, there will be no way that we can uh, that, that, we, that we can continue that, that the enemy the, the Soviets or the Americans or whoever it would be they will there 's no way that they will simply let us go back to leading our lives in their eyes. we are horrendous criminals, and so this idea of the banality of evil, although it 's a neat, clean idea, is as far as i can see not uh what the documentation of the time expresses the facts of the time were that eichmann and his cohorts were anything but banal, right and mm-hmm. it, it completely ignores a lot of other
2: things that Arendt says which is there's no doubt that he's guilty she never denied that he was guilty she never said that he was not an anti-semite she never said that uh, that he did not, in fact, know what he was doing. They're taking that out of context. Eichmann knew what he was doing, and he was for doing it in a philosophical sense. It was his inability to think about what he was doing. You know, Eichmann says uh, that, that you know that, that they sent him to a uh, a pit where they had machine gunned down. Uh, yeah. A couple of hundred Jews in front of him, and he's like he he vomited, and it made him right. And the reason that it vomited and made him sick is because he had to think about what was going on. Mm-hmm. Right? It was very easy for him to sit at his desk or to negotiate with Jews in Hungary or or to or to talk to Judenrats in in Holland or France. It was very easy for him to do that in his little bureaucratic mind. You know, and the idea that the banality of evil as a philosophical idea or as a rule, as a guidebook, that it, that it, that it's bullshit, that it doesn't exist, that, that's insane. You know, Julian Assange pushed out this, uh, leaked video uh, of these soldiers killing civilians in Iraq from an Apache helicopter. And they sound crazy. They sound like, oh, I just want to kill these guys. Oh, I just want to kill these guys. And who are they talking to on the radio? Fucking lawyers trying to get the, the clear okay to kill civilians. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you, you want to you think that the banality of evil is 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 not true? Uh, all you have to do is, is look at the 125,000 people who are working for the atomic bomb project to find the banality of evil. And I'm not saying anything disparaging about the, the scientists who made that happen and helped end the war. I'm saying we murdered... Hundreds of thousands of people in the blink of an eye, and not too many of them were in a uniform. And that is evil. Yeah. And it was a controlled, focused, evil thing that we did to achieve a better purpose. Yeah. How different is that from what the Nazis were saying?
3: Is it because we won the war? It's
2: because we won the war, which goes back to what Curtis LeMay said in 1946, which is the goddamn good thing that we won this war, because if we didn't, we'd all be shot as war criminals. Yeah, it, It's the truth, right? Uh, Might does not make right. Being morally right helps. You know, the idea that banality of evil is is fake or that it doesn't exist, is it, it's baffling to me that people... Pe- people cannot see a bureaucrat as just as dangerous as someone with a gun. Sometimes they're worse.
3: Dan grattan's book is a podcast that you sent me, the desk killers. Yes. You're shuffling papers to send people off to their death. Cold and personal. In that as you said, that, that that mindset, okay, I've done my job, it's it's eight o'clock, let's go home now and have a drink and dinner with my wife. What'd you today. I uh, sent a thousand people to their death today. There's a
2: great, there's a great book about the the Holocaust called "The Good Old Days."
3: Okay, I'll look it up.
2: It's about the perpetrators, the guy, the guys in the grouping, the guys who run into camps. All of them went home at five after they punched the clock and you know they they thought those years from 1939 and 1944 they thought those years were the best years of their lives
3: yeah there was in the documentary Unrepentant Nazis one said they're smoking a cigar unbelievable i don't know how you could how you could not face up to that morality and not break but apparently you got a wall there that didn't have to do that i'm going to rewatch the Eichmann thing but it's just it's
2: it's too good uh, it's too good and you know yeah i, I watched another documentary which i I cannot remember. And it was talking about the, that was the first digital magnetic tape used on television. It was high resolution magnetic tape. And okay. it was digital. All magnetic tape before that was analog. Thus it ages, which is why when you watch early TV, like it, it really like it, it fogs over or it bleeds. And the Eichmann trial does not do that. Mm-hmm. And there were, I, I wrote it down, there were 350 hours of the trial that was recorded.
3: They talked about that in the the NBC guy, and the son is interviewed talking about the father, and they had to do go from scratch, set everything up, put it on videotape. They had four cameras, and they learned to, what we take for granted today, how to communicate among the cameras to get different shots while it's going on there. So that was groundbreaking because the trial was in 61. Is that right? Why didn't Mossad, you don't have to answer it tonight, why didn't they just assassinate him in Argentina? Just pop him and go.
2: The Mossad started out as a mm-hmm. just a hit squad. and I think they were called Shinpet before Israel was a state.
4: Mm-hmm. That's right.
2: And... Uh, w- once they came under the state, you know Ben Gurion and and, <coughs> and the people that were under him, they were they were really trying to tell upon the Western powers that this was a real state, this was a, a democratically elected government, this was a valid state that that needed recognition. They were going to sit at the UN. Uh, this wasn't a fluke, uh, and they really were looking for legitimacy, really hardcore legitimacy, and and, and the Mossad and the Ercoon. Um, and all those gangs that were running around, blowing up the King David Hotel, you know, all that shit had to stop. And they had to act like a modern democracy or they weren't going to get America on their side or they weren't going to, you know. And, and they were defending their country with uh, with planes, uh, Messerschmitt 109s that were uh, seized uh, by the allies in Italy and, and flown to Israel with swastikas still on them. And and they were piloted by Jews like uh, Paul Rubens, the actor. His father was one of those pilots who, who helped uh, uh, found the state of Israel, uh, in, unfortunately, in a lot of Arab blood. They didn't go around whacking guys like the Bulgarians, uh, wet jobs is what they were called in the Cold War. You know, they just um, they, they had to have that legitimacy. Now, they lost a lot of that legitimacy in the 70s when Golda Meir was sending out hit squads, all over the world to kill uh, the Palestinians who were responsible for the Munich Massacre in 1972. That's right. Uh, but but in, in the 50s, they really were were trying to, to establish a lot of legitimacy. And believe it or not, they, they really did want a lot of that legi- legitimacy in the Arab world. They needed to live at peace with their neighbors, which was still 20 years away. Eichmann wasn't the first person they kidnapped. A lot of people, there were other Nazis who were found in South America who were uh, bagged and brought back to Israel and set on trial. Legitimacy of that was called into question even at the trial. And Gideon Hauser actually brought up a very valid point in the first few days when he was challenged by Robert Servatius, Eichmann's lawyer. Well, how, how can you even do this? Eichmann didn't commit any crimes in Israel. Hauser's point was well, then why have the, the Nuremberg trials? Well, why have the, the Einsatzgruppen trials? Why have any of those trials that the Allies had? In occupied Germany in nineteen forty-five and nineteen forty-six. All of them are illegitimate.
4: The Einsatzgruppen executions took place in Nazi occupied Russia and other countries, not in Germany. Therefore, some argued they could not be tried there.
2: That's a very valid point. You know, we were we were trying Nazis for war crimes in the United States, even though that those crimes had had taken place in Europe.
6: He's practically the
7: last important Nazi
6: who arrived in Argentina after the war.
7: Zasen came up with this crazy idea that he would interview the mastermind of the Holocaust.
8: This is him boasting about what he did. The head of the
6: intelligence service of Israel, Eichmann, was captured.
8: I saw dinner tomorrow. I saw dinner before. I wasn't
6: in any way at all aware that something like this was going to The fear that Zasen was not the Temple
9: Man The story
6: of the Eichmann Trial, 60 years later, still not fully told. Slilea Klata, Nelmu Beoach
3: it's what I read today in Eichmann, about Eichmann today, and I went, ooh, this is America right now. And I, st- and I looked around the room and I wanted to share it and it's like, no, everybody's not going to know what I'm reading and why. Oh, so I reread it and I thought, let's take a picture of the page. I haven't done it yet, but I've got it marked. And even you wrote or someone wrote, I think, ironic in the uh, in the side there. But it's the self-deception that the Germans did to themselves, even after the war, that self-deception was going on. And I'm going, damn, this is a playbook for America right here. This is scary.
10: Can I ask you a question? Just one.
11: Why me?
3: I suppose that is the only question that matters.
12: This is from Augsburg, my city. So many people forget that the first country the Nazis invaded was their own. You know, after the last war, my people struggled, they they felt weak, they felt small. And then Hitler comes along with the marching, and the big show, and the flags, and the... And And he, he hears of me.
2: We'll get into that like really deep next week, but okay. Arendt studied the origins of totalitarianism. She wrote the book on that. I think <laughs> it was published in 1950, and it was uh, basically a textbook uh, for philosophers to teach and to study how totalitarianism works. So when she wrote Eichmann, it was wasn't like she was going in blind. She understood where Germany had come from, and she understood where... Uh, where had it had been going for a while? So you can read these sort of asides in Eichmann, and people just kind of read it as a history of the trial or the history of the Holocaust. It's and it's it's much more than that. There's a lot wrapped up in that in terms of what her own ideas about totalitarianism are and what they can do to humanity. I'm glad you're enjoying
3: it. I am, it's a depressing book, but yet I'm enjoying it because I'm learning. And there's times I stop. Okay. What did I just read here? Think about this. Reread it for better clarity and then continue on or even close it up. Hmm, Let's go think about this for a while. Do something so you can it over. Okay, I'm enjoying it. I'm still reading the Spice Book, but I stopped reading the Spice Book to pick up your book, and I'll have it done by Tuesday. But it's not – I mean, it's it's a good read. It's not a fast read, but, I mean, you've got to – you know, she writes you sentences. You're going.
2: Yeah, she's an excellent and, author. Um, yeah. She reminds me of Keegan or Beaver or uh, any of those people who write these really profound things to say.
3: Yeah. I'm going to give you a recommendation for viewing on HBO Max. You may have done it already. The series Barry.
2: Oh, Barry. Yeah. With uh, yes. Bill
3: Hader. Yes.
2: Yeah. I'm halfway through season one.
3: Oh, it gets dark.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm on it. I'm. I got to finish Succession. I got to do that. And have you seen Conspiracy on HBO Max? No, no. He, okay, so right after you finish a rent, or maybe it doesn't matter. Um, go ahead and maybe watch it during a rent. But it's it's called Conspiracy, and okay. it's about the Von C conference. Okay. And Kenneth Bronner plays Hydra. Okay. And Stanley Tucci plays Eichmann. Oh and it's a it's a it's what we call a bottle episode. It takes place in one one room you know it's not it's not an mm-hmm. expensive film it's only like an eighty six minute film and it's the it's the bow by blow of how do we do this okay and it's it's based off the real minutes that were found after the war
3: okay my thing is reading okay i'll after I'm done with Eichmann I'll jump into that but um Eichmann and then Barry. That trial just oh my goodness, that, It'll blow uh, your mind.
2: the trial blows your mind. Yeah. the trial touches a lot that people don't want to talk about, yeah, oh, it, you know, and people got very angry with Arendt for even discussing some of the things that came up in that trial.
3: Yes, she was not afraid to, to pick away at the the scabs the, to whatever metaphor you would use for that to, to talk about that
2: it's like it's these same people dave. it's these same people who last week were saying, you know uh, Enrique Torrio can't go to jail for being uh, the racist leader of the Proud Boys. Uh, he can't be racist because he he's, has a Latino background. That's the dumbest fucking thing I have ever heard. You ask any historian of the Holocaust, who pushed the Jews into the gas chambers? And the answer is other Jews. Anyone who has any idea about how totalitarianism works... Knows the answer to that question. And of course, it should not astound us that the people on the right can't understand it themselves.
3: There was complicity. And Hannah talks about that, about how the Jews were selling out the Jews, and the Germans knew how to do that.
2: Exploiters.
3: They were all, they, they exploited them financially, they exploited them the property
2: and that's why you can have gay latino republicans from new york in the republican party yep that's that's how that works
9: Jewish leaders, and this leadership cooperated with the Nazis. They'll have our heads for this.
4: This was the headline in the Daily News.
0: These think your articles are terrific, and these want you dead. Some of them are quite colorful.
8: The greatest evil in the world is the evil committed by
1: nobodies. Did you really have no idea there would be such a furious reaction?
8: Time to understand is not the same as forgiveness.
1: This time you've gone too far.
8: It is this phenomenon that I have called the banality of evil.
2: I want to jump into something real quick and then uh, we can, I know that we meander Mm. And digress, which is perfectly fine. I remember saying something last a couple of days ago, and I want to, I want to clarify some statements because I know I said something controversial, uh, which was there was no difference between, you know, someone like Eichmann and some, and, and these scientists in the middle of the desert building this bomb to end this war. And, and, uh, I know that I'm going to get blowback from that on social media. I know that I'm going to get nasty emails from, from a lot of people. And I want to, I want to qualify. All right. And quantify what I was talking about <laughs> in the head shit airs. <clears throat> in talking about the banality of evil, like Arendt was discussing the banality of evil, um, there is a normality uh, to killing and the involvement in killing, which the 20th century and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, brought forth because of the ease of destruction at which it was technologically possible for human beings to do this to one another. No one is calling the Einsatz group in banal or their leaders for that matter, but it was people like Eichmann who represented this bureaucratic state, uh, which was uh, not too far removed from, you know, these desk sergeants and staff officers in Washington. Who in the 1870s had no problem eradicating the Native Americans? In the genocidal application was very similar, in my opinion. It was it was a a racist ideology held by uh, the perpetrators to cleanse um, and and make more white an area of the country. And I, I I don't think that that is a controversial parallel. However, considering what I said about uh, the bomb. And with Oppenheimer coming out here in about a month and a half, or not even that, like, I don't know, 30 days, it's coming out the 23rd, if I remember, of of July. I want to emphasize something that Arendt had emphasized in her work, which was the intent or the causality of what was going on. And to her, it was defined as radical evil. So... If you look at the final solution that was a radical evil it was a it was a radical movement for an evil result whose intent and purpose was to destroy the the every last living Jew in Europe if not the world right like the gestapo followed rommel into north africa and were organizing For the Jewish eradication of North Africa Not not that there were very many Jews in North Africa But wherever wherever the German army went The SS went right behind them And that was their, their intent and stated purpose The entire point of the Manhattan Project Was not to kill every last Japanese person We dropped one bomb Killed, I think, if you know conservative numbers are true, about eighty to ninety thousand people, the great majority of which, probably ninety percent or more, were civilians who didn't have anything to do with the war effort. Three, three, four days later, we dropped another bomb, killed thirty to fifty thousand people because Nagasaki is in a bowl and the blast radius was limited. And then here there was a, a coup attempt. Hirohito thwarted the coup and decided we're going to end the war. And the United States thenceforth did not drop any more atomic bombs. So a statement of radical evil does not apply because it was not the stated purpose or the goal of the American army or the army air corps or the air force as a function to ethnically cleanse Japan of Japanese the entire point was to win the war. And once that once that was finished, the bombing stopped, the killing stopped. The killing never would have stopped with the final solution until every last Jew was dead. And, and that is the difference between uh, Arendt was saying the stated purpose was radical evil. There was no radical evil in the Manhattan Project. There was no radical evil in in the... Army per se, there was no institution in the American armed forces organized for genocide in the 1940s, on on I think any scale other than an individual scale. And of course, the Marine Corps got pretty lively in Iwo Jima and Okinawa, as we know. Um, and there were quite possibly war crimes committed not just on the Japanese side, but definitely on the Marine Corps side. Uh, that, but there was a it was a very very desperate and anyone who'd seen Hacksaw Ridge and, and has read uh, Letters of Iwo Jima and all of that can, you know, they—that is—that is definitely something that that we can admit to. But, but the Marine Corps was not organized to to murder uh, Japanese because they were Japanese. And when specifically with the Manhattan Project. They were building that bomb because they thought by 1942, 1943, they were going to use it against Germany because Werner Heisenberg was was on the atomic project in Nazi Germany, and that science was wide open. You just had to theorize it, test it, and experiment and then create what you're going to create. So they just thought it was only a matter of time before everybody had these things. And then the minute they built the first one, the first thing the scientists wanted to do was to limit its use. And the Army said, ha-ha, no, rabbit's out of the hat. You can't just put it back in the hat. It's it's out now, and, and we're going to use it however we want to use it, not not however you want to use it. And that's when the scientists, and in, in, including Oppenheimer, were like, oh, shit, we need an international governing body, making sure that these things aren't just bouncing around the world, to which Truman and his government said, fuck you. We did not spend two billion taxpayers' dollars uh, to give the bomb to an international uh, council of whoever to decide when it's it's going to be used. So th- there was a little bit of naivety there, but you know, it,
4: Dylan it, means naivete. I just wanted
2: to clarify that 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 na- nativity was not nativity.
4: Dylan means naivete.
2: Naivete was was not uh, pointed at at ethnic cleansing or eradication. So that's, yep, yep. that's just wanted to get through that. That's my big asterisk that I'm going to put at the end of the podcast before people start calling me, you know, some sixties radical
3: anyway. Well, well said, well, well done. Okay. Even if I didn't know you, I would still say well said, well done. Okay. Yes. Let's go back to the documentaries and we'll start with Eichmann. The specialist? The specialist. What I found, I still think about even today was NBC, I believe, they were the ones, that the son of the producer was talking about his father's work and setting up four cameras and learning how to, the cameras talk to each other and the rise of videotape and such. That, I mean, that gave to me is legitimacy to the trial, legitimacy to recording an historical event. And it's also, you see the birth of, of how media was used in an unbiased way, as far as we know.
8: What is your name? My name is Adolf Eichmann.
5: I'm standing in front of the building where, in only a few hours' time, the trial of the century will begin. David, we finally have our director. And the eyes of the world will fall upon Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi... Responsible for organizing
11: the mass murder of six million European Jews. These gentlemen are the creme de la creme of the Israeli film industry. Get some sleep. I may feel well enough to get the first plane back to New York. This
4: isn't PR. They're concerned the judges won't ever give us permission to film.
11: You have three days. Three? Those cameras must now become extensions of your own eyes so that you can become extensions of mine.
5: When we first arrived, they say it cannot be true. You invent this because of you. All over the world, I see them listen now. Well,
6: no. I... Because of you. Because of you.
5: You're
4: lives you to, to the wall. Call this protection? We could have been killing every single one of us.
11: What transformed this ordinary man into someone who was capable of sending hundreds and thousands of children to their death? Gentlemen, I don't believe in monsters, but I do believe that men are responsible for monstrous deeds. This is a Milton Frootman production directed by Leo
6: Hurwitz. Without me, they wouldn't be within a million miles of this trial. And without you, they wouldn't have a tenth
11: of the audience that they have. This is going to be mentally and physically the most interesting thing you ever do. All right, gentlemen, this is it. Moment of truth.
3: So it comes back to think when you watch documentaries, you always have to deal with the bias of the documentarians. And as I was watching it, and again, I'm going to watch it again probably in a week or so, thinking, watching, trying to pick up on, on, on who, I mean, I was impressed as, as old as it is, really very good.
2: Okay, so we're, we're going to okay. get together again and get back to a rent. <laughs>
3: The hand, meandering,
4: meandering, yeah.
2: I do have some Arendt questions. Okay. I had started editing some of the episodes. You and I had talked about how Arendt had been misconstrued Mm -hmm. or how people had taken some things that she had said and were trying to twist them. And I revisited that, and it was kind of amazing to me, particularly the Judenrott situation, where the Judenrott were primarily the people that Eichmann was dealing with. Mm-hmm. And the reason the former members of the Judenrat were called as witnesses in Eichmann's trial is because they had firsthand knowledge of those negotiations. if anyone was going to convict Eichmann of being guilty participating in the holocaust it would it would be these Judenrats who were witnesses to to this this murder and i just i thought it was really strange how thinking that and keeping that in my head how a lot of Jews were just pissed off at Arendt criticizing the Judenrats, and she wasn't really particularly criticizing them. She was she brought them press coverage. She was covering the fact that these had had come up, and a, a lot of the the Jews who who had been born since the Holocaust were not really privy to the fact that these Judenrat negotiations were going on. So it was that was what was calling the, causing the controversy. And, and then, of course, she was blamed for it because she was drawing a, a an eye to it, but people kind of were not really looking into why she was drawing an eye to it and I think that documentary, the Specialist," I think it sort of cuts to the quick of that when they they show the explosion in the audience of uh, how this this member in the audience like freaks out and is like, "You sold our families down the river so that you could get out."
8: על le לאריא סדאל, אקילות שגורשו, ד flyers גירוש ובזמן תעליח הגירוש.
6: עד שקיבלו כל ההידיות, ועד שאנחנו 믿נו שמה הם כבר קיבלו הודעות מאיתנו, הם כבר ידעו את הגורלם, אבל מה היה אפשר לעשות? מה היה אפשר לעשות? תוציאו את האיש הזה. אני מבקש שקט.
10: אני מבקש שקט. אם לא יהיה שקט, אני אפסיק את הישיבה.
6: אני מבקש עוד פעם שקט וזו תפעם האחרונה. תמתוקלו אחרי זה לדבר על זה. זה פשוט אנחנו די בנו ישלח לנו אדוני אשתו. אנחנו די בנו מ Kodem של מ כן, אין אנשים אנשים ש לא לא עברו להם ליברוא. חמישים אחוזים אנשים שברחו נדפסו. אין אז בתו למה לא לנו ליברוא è naz mit verso. E lei fa soltanto
4: da anni, da anni però. Dopo negli anzeno
10: che alla cela, cioè. La arte di
2: had this emotional reaction that was caught on tape but was pretty amazing to see and i've, I've seen a couple of uh, other documentaries about it there i mean there's there's tons on this subject there's eichmann in 2007 something that brought me great
10: happiness to start a new life in argentina <laughs>
8: Minister David Ben Gurion announced that Adolf Eichmann, wanted for his part in the murder of six million Jews by the Nazis, he will
10: stand by on Israeli soil. Herr Eichmann, my name is Captain Artner Les. I am told that you are willing to give us your version of your role in this Third Reich.
5: Well, let's begin. Don't you think he should be tried by due process of law?
1: We're paying him too much respect by giving him a trial.
5: Why was your department called 4B4? I am a transportation officer. There's not enough hard evidence.
10: I want an admission of guilt. You'll never confess. He was always covering
4: his tracks. I had nothing to do with killing Jews. I was... Weighing orders if to carry out the order knowing they will die does that not make you responsible i got it every time he repeats himself three times he's lying never never never
2: The Eichmann Show with Martin uh, Freeman, I think, is in it. The Eichmann Tapes. Hannah Arendt, which actually is a movie that I mailed to you just today. Operation Finale um, just a few years ago with Oscar Isaac.
11: You have no interest in what I have to say. Unless it confirms what you think you already know. My job was simple. Save the country I love from being destroyed. Is your job any different?
5: I have a lead on the great enemy of our people.
13: Adolf Eichmann. The architect of the
5: final solution?
11: The trail went cold in 46. Latest intelligence suggests Buenos Aires. This guy convinced rabbis to load the trains themselves and not by force.
13: If it is him, we
6: need an elite crew.
0: I'm not joining your heat
4: squad.
6: I would happily put a
11: bullet in between his eyes, but that's not what we're doing here. This is strictly catch and extract. Eichmann will stand trial here in Israel.
6: Think what it means finally, publicly, holding to account the men who
5: organized our slaughter. Our memory reaches back through recorded history. The book of memory still lies open, and you here now are the hand that holds the pen. If you succeed, for the first time in our history, we will judge our executioner, and we will warn off any who may wish to follow his example. If you fail, he escapes justice, perhaps forever.
2: Speaks from 2022, you know, this is a, this is a recurring theme that people keep coming back to and back to and back to, because they keep trying to understand it. I spent way too much time watching, not just the specialist, but I spent a lot of time analyzing Arendt's criticism or criticism of Arendt and what she says. I find it amazing that some people said that she said that he was not an anti-Semite. Well, she quotes him in the book as describing himself as an anti-Semite. That's that's in the introduction. That's very strange. And then this guy on YouTube that I played a clip of saying you did not become an SS officer without becoming an anti-Semite. I don't think, I don't think he understands the structure of the SS. Like mm-hmm. the SS is not just Department Four B Four in in charge of exportations. The SS is huge. So if he's trying to make a narrow statement of do you work in Department Four B Four without being an anti-Semite, I think the question, the answer is. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. But to make a blanket statement like that about the entire SS, like there were there were Koreans serving in the SS. Like he said, officers. So you might be hard pressed. But of course, if you see the Costa Gavras film, Amen, which is about a sanitary officer who clearly was not an anti-Semite. He was trying to do what he could for the Jews, which is you know not much. Arendt also has like a ton of sarcasm in her book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think is lost in the translation of the literature, particularly in the, in the first chapter, she like hammers his, she talks about his bad German, how they said, you know, how do you plead? How do you plead? How do you plead? And he says, in the sense of the indictment, I plead not guilty. She puts that in quotes throughout the book. Well, this is, is this what he says when he says he's not guilty in the sense of the indictment? She's clearly making fun of the man. And I think people took that wrong. People were taking the quotes out of context and saying, well, she's agreeing with Eichmann that he's not guilty in the sense of the indictment with air quotes. I thought that was a dramatic misreading
3: of her text. Okay, think about the current critics are usually off the mark, and it isn't until future critics, scholars, set things right. She got hammered, and it stayed with her career. I'll draw the parallel with Oppenheimer, what we're both going to go see and, and talk about, hopefully, not just the movie, but his his life. He got hammered, and then the U.S. government years later says, you know, we screwed up. Let's give you back posthumously. When faced with the truth or with the facts, you know, it's the, old Liberty, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance.
11: John Ford can recreate it, people with wonderful characters who have become legend in their own time. Of them all, two are the most memorable, Liberty Valance and the man who shot him. That's my stake, Valance. You heard him, dude. Pick it up. I said you, Liberty. You pick it up. And the man who shot him was justifiably destined to become a hero. Yet strangely enough, only one of these people could be sure he knew the identity of the man who shot Liberty Valance. Now you stay out of this, Donovan. He's been hiding behind your gun long enough. You got a choice, dishwasher. Either you get out of town, or tonight you'll be out in that street alone. So you had a gun in his hand, didn't you? I didn't say that. That ain't murder, Mr. Marshall. That's a clean-cut case
12: of self-defense. Now get out of my way. This time right between the eyes
3: john ford film the truth of yeah you don't print the truth because the truth is not it's not inter- it's just it's like no it's that's that's no it's really happening it's not what i want to hear it's okay my, i'll make the analogy real quick here battle of old bighorn yeah white people wanted to know what happened to custer the indians would say this no 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 what happened to Custer Indians say this is in front of the indian's like just tell him anything just just fabricate the damn thing yes you know? <laughs> yes and so that we get gets lost in translation as you said with that years later people figure out you know what it was not a hero's death it was not it just it was a quick it was a massacre was, the guy was a jerk and he had it coming and he lost it he was he's not the hero it's taken what it was in 1876 in June yeah the battle over a hundred years. And is it revision in history? Yeah, but it's probably more accurate.
2: But is it a correction of history? It's a correction of history. It's probably truthful.
3: Come back to your question. It was Aaron, make it, a, Aaron yeah. make it a correction? She's hitting the nail on the head with a hammer, and people don't want that. No, 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 don't, don't do that. No, 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 that's not right. But yet, because it's not what they want to hear, not what they want to see. Or they find out some truth that, like the guy in the film, oh shit, that really happened. You don't want to know that your family of whites were slaveholders, and yes, one of your ancestors executed slaves. You don't want to know that, or you got an Irishman in your past.
2: It's a when you have to reconcile your history.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I get it, but I don't, I don't understand how they they came after her. So a lot of people don't know this. Like I think I think it was about a year before he was captured. Eichmann actually did an interview with this journalist. In which he sat down as Adolf Eichmann, and the the article itself did not come out until after he was executed. Mm-hmm. But this journalist, he was a German journalist, and I don't remember what paper, but he just like just just flat out asked him, "Were you involved in this, and what did you do?" And Eichmann spilled the beans because he didn't think that he was ever going to get caught, and he was like, "Oh yeah, absolutely. I called him on the phone, and I negotiated this, and I I convinced um, law enforcement agencies all over." Occupied Europe to, to go round them up. And then I arranged the trains and worked on timetables with my staff and, and, and sent them to their death. And, and actually he said in the interview and Arendt quotes him on page 46, I'll go to my grave laughing because I killed at least five million Jews. He said that <sighs> I don't understand how people, people can read that in Arendt's book and then accuse Arendt of trying to whitewash Eichmann. That doesn't make any sense. And clearly in the movie The Specialist, they go through, like, clearly Eichmann is lying in The Specialist. You can see the clips. It's Mm -hmm. so apparent that he's lying. And it falls right in with the banality of evil. He is a boring bureaucrat. He is that person filling out paperwork. Yeah.
3: He's a death killer.
2: Death killer. It's exactly what he is. She lays out on page 212, she lays out in four parts of what they were accusing him of. And why he wasn't guilty. The question of his participation of the shootings in the East, in the Einsatzgruppen, in the Ostland. Well, Eichmann had nothing to do with that. Two, dealing with the deportation of Jews from the Polish ghettos to nearby killing centers, particularly the gas vans. He had nothing to do with that. Point three, his liability for what went on the extermination camps. You know, the doctors choosing who's healthy and who's not and going into the chimneys. He had nothing to do with that. His general authority in the Eastern Territories, the question of his responsibility for living conditions in the ghetto and the unspeakable misery that was endured in them, he had nothing to do with that. It doesn't mean that he's not guilty. It just means that what the ch- the court was charging him with were the wrong crimes. And previous yeah. to that, she says on the top of page 212, I mean, this is a, an unbelievable sentence. But the judgment, so pleasantly devoid of cheap oratory, would have destroyed the case for the prosecution altogether if the judges had not found reason to charge Eichmann with some responsibility for the crimes in the East. In addition to the main crime to which he had confessed, namely that he had shipped people to their death in full awareness of what he was doing. So Arendt says he's guilty. Mm-hmm. And luckily, the judges could see that he was guilty. hmm but what the prosecution was arguing, he was not guilty of.
3: Because the prosecution was incompetent.
2: I think the prosecution had other things on their mind, other than Eichmann's guilt. They were trying to build a state, and we were talking before about the divide mm-hmm. in Jewish society in Israel. But you know, on two nineteen, if the judges had cleared Eichmann completely on these counts connected with the hair-raising stories told over and over by witnesses at the trial. They would not have arrived at a different judgment of guilt, and Eichmann would not have escaped capital punishment. The result would have been the same, but they would have destroyed utterly and without compromise the case as the prosecution had presented it. If they weren't interested in prosecuting him for the crimes that he had really committed, if that were the case, the, I mean, the trial would have been two weeks. Mm-hmm. But that's not what they were doing in Jerusalem, and that's what she was writing about, and that's why people were pissed off. How dare you say he was not guilty of these crimes? And yet they don't read her book at the full extent, and they don't understand her argument. I don't know how many Jews were shot in the Ostland. 1.9 million? I mean, more Jews were shot than were gassed. But he had nothing to do with that. And the minute that leaves your lips, the minute that you say that, you're like, what are you talking about? Of course Eichmann is guilty. I'm not saying he's not guilty. I'm saying he had nothing to do with that, or the gas fans, or the doctors doing the selection process in in, in the death camps. These are are two totally different things. Adolf Hitler never killed anybody. It doesn't mean he's not guilty. Leslie Van Houten was just released from prison last week. Mm -hmm. I can't believe that that happened in my lifetime, to to be honest with you. I don't think that she should be out walking around. But I had uh, some guy at work tell me Charles Manson's not guilty. He should never have served a day in prison because he never killed anybody. Oh. I got one more for you. I got one for me on page two forty six. Okay. 247, because of the specialist. Oh, then came Eichmann's last statement. His hopes for justice were disappointed. The court had not believed him, though he had always done his best to tell the truth. Of course, she's joking here. Yeah. That's sarcasm. Yeah, it is. The court did not understand him. He had never been a Jew hater, and he had never willed the murder of human beings. His guilt came from his obedience, and his obedience is praised as a virtue. His virtue had been abused by the Nazi leaders, but he was not one of the ruling clique. He was a victim, and only the leaders deserved punishment. Of course, that's how he
3: thinks. You know who that sounds like? Donald Trump. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. Just doing what I'm told. You right. and I have the e- easy thing of looking back at that. We're safe. We're secure. But at that time, if we were living, what would we have done? That's a separate that, I mean, issue. That I, I can't yeah, get it. Into is, it is. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to, but I just right. Yeah, Well yeah, I mean, but, what uh,
2: can we do now about the present state of affairs? It's it's somewhat it's somewhat similar.
3: No, yeah, it is.
2: It, it is. It, it. I mean, I'm not going to go storm the Capitol. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right.
3: No, no. Even though no, I think no, the system
2: no. is corrupt and fucked up, I'm not doing that. No. So what do we no, do? We got
3: to do it lawfully. So her yeah, last, gotta do the ballot box.
2: Her last paragraph on two ninety eight. And the question of individual guilt or innocence, the act of metting out justice to both the defendant and the victim, are the only things at stake in a criminal court. The Eichmann trial was no exception, even though the court here was confronted with a crime it could not find in the law books and with a criminal whose like was unknown in any court, at least prior to the Nuremberg trials. The present report deals with nothing but the extent to which the court in Jerusalem succeeded in fulfilling the demands of justice. So she even says it. She says the court came to the right decision, regardless of the trial being on the wrong foot. And in the Mm -hmm. specialist, you actually see Judge Havlavi stop the prosecutor, Gideon Hauser, and he says, this trial is not going the way that we want this trial to go. It's not addressing the real reasons that the accused is guilty. You see Judge Havlavi say that in the specialist. Mm Mm-hmm. And Hauser's arguing with the judge. That's why I can't believe that documentary. It's, it needs to be seen. It needs to be like required watching. It's something
11: really that I don't think enough people see. While waiting for the result of her husband's appeal, Mrs. Eichmann flew to Germany, where with her six-year-old son, she was taken on a sightseeing tour by the daughter of an American rabbi. Among the places she visited was this beer hall in Munich, from which the first Nazi putsch was organized. A morbid experience for yet another human being whose life has been caught up by the consequences of Nazi fanaticism. Only a few days later, Eichmann's appeal to the Supreme Court was rejected. Following the failure of his plea to the Israeli president, Adolf Eichmann paid the supreme penalty.
3: Well, I agree with you, and it's going to take writers like Aaron, it's going to take writers like Orwell, and there are other writers that we're learning about, to write, to talk about. That's where we have to have these ideas, not Twitter, but conversations, documentaries. <laughs> not threads? No.
2: Before before we let go, I want to, one last thing, and then we will close out a run okay i i promise you okay <laughs> alliteration in literature what is
3: it alliteration uh yes. it's a repetition it's 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 sounds yes yes it sounds it's 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 yes a alliter- I, I, I should give me 30 minutes after we're done and i can give you yeah but yeah it's just <laughs>
2: I found alliteration in The Specialist. Okay. And I thought it was brilliant. I guess it was the third or fourth time I saw it. Okay. And it's the editor and the director are layering um, Gideon Hauser, the prosecutor. And when he's saying in alliteration in Hebrew, Ar-Var-Va-Ah? and he's reading a piece of evidence, Mm -hmm. and he puts the paper down. He says, Ar-Var-Va-Ah, and he puts the paper down. He's going paper by paper. Ar-Var-Va-Ah, and I had to read the subtitles to understand what he was saying, and it was Eichmann contesting the fact that these orders were coming from his desk. And even if he had signed them, he was authorized to sign them because he was given the authority. Yeah. So I looked it up, and of course the subtitles help. r var va ah, in Hebrew. For before.
3: Okay. For before. Okay.
2: All right. So the obviously der Führer, we know the man with the funny toothbrush mustache and who reports to him who is head of the schutzstaffeln that is of course heinrich himmler and who is running the reichs security head office referat 4 before the reich security head office r s h o is run by our favorite boy SS Ubergeprilfuhrer Reinhard Heydrich. Under Heydrich is in Department Amt 4, the Gestapo, the Geheimstaatspolizei, Heinrich Muller. Muller has him under him, Department 4B, which is sex, S E C T S. That is Albert Hartel. And under sex, you've got, you know, Freemasons. Uh, Sinti Roma and then you have department 4 which is Jews and the head of department 4 B4 Arvarva is Adolf
10: Eichmann <laughs> Juden aus Frankreich, Belgien, Holland. Arba b, Arba a, 42 G, Juden aus Deutschland. Arba b, a, G, 42 G, Juden aus <laughs> Griechenland. Arba b Arbaa, Shalosh, Alaxon, G, Alaxon, 1310 Juden aus Kroatien, Juden aus Protektorat, Juden aus Theresienstadt, Juden aus Rumänien Juden aus Ungarn, Juden aus Italien. Arba be Arbaa, a the G, Alaxon, 39 מגין אוס ג' ג' צריך להראים מה ניגמה, קומביאליסט, ארבע ב ארבע א, ששלושה שש שש שש,
8: in and
2: the alliteration in the specialist, Arvarva, ah, every time he says it, the editor and the director are re emphasizing. Eichmann's guilt. Mm. Because 4B4 was stamped on all the paperwork that was authorizing the shipments from across Europe to the death camps. Okay. It was a brilliant use of alliteration to prove Arendt's point in a documentary.
0: Hello. I'm Rachel Bloom, and today we're going to talk about the capture of Adolf Eichmann. So Israel's established in 1948, and Israel's like, okay, we need our own CIA. And so they form the Mossad. And David Ben-Gurion, who's the prime minister, is like, I'm going to appoint you, Izar Harel, to be head of Mossad. And Izar Harel is like, awesome. We're going to hunt down Nazi war criminals, because there are a lot of Nazis still, like, chilling. And the guy at the top of their list is Adolf Eichmann who literally planned the Holocaust. So we saw her I was like, let's nail this mother to the wall like a moose who's been hunted. Meanwhile, Adolf Eichmann is living in Argentina, making, like, a new alias. He's like, hmm, what's an Argentinian-sounding name? Oh, I know. Ricardo Clement. Good job, Adolf. I mean, Ricardo. Wink. However, his kids who are there with him, they're like, well, I'm really attached to Eichmann. It's like in all my yearbooks. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it. So, the Eichmann kids are f***ing stupid. (laughs) Okay. So, in the 1950s, uh, Eichmann's son, Klaus, starts dating this very nice girl, Sylvia. And she's like, Donnie, I'm dating, like, the best guy. His name is Klaus Eichmann. And he's like, That's weird. My dog loves licking her (laughs) My dog licks her vagina more than any dog. That's cool. Anyway, so Sylvia's father, Lothar Herman, is like, Ha, Eichmann, Eichmann, where have I heard that name? And so Larthar tips off the Mossad. And he's like, my daughter's dating a guy named Klaus Eichmann. Like, this might be Adolf Eichmann. This might be the son of Adolf Eichmann. And the Mossad is like, we need to check this guy out. And so they send operatives to Argentina, all of whom are Holocaust survivors. And they're like, you need to take pictures of Eichmann to make sure this is Eichmann, so that we're not just, like, capturing some poor Argentinian dude. Smart. Okay. So, No!
4: What are you looking for? My
0: water went under the couch. I got you. Yeah. Thanks, friend. hmm So they send a guy who just kind of walks up to him while he's gardening. And they're like, tell us how you garden. And he's like, well. And he, like, starts to explain gardening to them. And the whole time they have a suitcase that has, like, a spy camera in it. So they're like, and he's like, what's that sound? And they're like, nothing. So, they send the pictures back to Israel, and the Mossad is like, dudes, this is Eichmann. Let's get him there. But Harrell's like, whoa, Argentina's really bad about extraditing Nazis. They, like, don't give a shit for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why. But they're just bad about it. And he tells Viharoni, if we're going to capture Adolf Eichmann... We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to like fool and kidnap, him. like like a kid on a milk carton. We're gonna have to milk carton Adolf Eichmann. Mm. So the four operatives, um, they go to Argentina. It's weird to tell a story about Nazis and be so cozy. Anyway, they park a deserted car to lure Eichmann, and they're like, "Hey guys, so eh, to distract ourselves, we need to come up with a group name." How about the kidnapping friends? And one of them's like, No, I don't. I that, Okay, if we're gonna come up with names, now's not the time to do it. But if we're going to, I think it should be called the abduction posse. And another one's like, No, 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 no. Listen, how about, I don't know, the snatch squad? And they're like, Snatch squad! And just then, that's when Eichmann walks down the road. And they're like, oh, Our car's broken down like it's not. And they tackle Eichmann. They just, like, full-on, like, bum-rush Eichmann. And they get him in the car. And my dog continues to lick her own...
11: I'll be Dog.
0: I want to do the rest of the story lying down.
11: You do it. You do it you... You do it the way you want. So
0: they bring him to a safe house. And then they try to question him to make sure... It's Adolf Eichmann living in Germany. I... And Eichmann's like, Hola. <laughs> Me amo Ricardo Clement like he's pretending to be Argentinian. They're just like, clearly not, you are a pasty white German dude. And finally he drops all the shit and he's like, Alright, I'm Adolf Ekman. Can I get a glass of wine? And they're like, okay. There is a plane leaving from Buenos Aires to Israel how do we sneak Eichmann onto this plane? So May 20th, 1960, they sedate Adolf Eichmann, they dress him up as an LL flight attendant, which is the Israeli airline, and they literally, like, drag him to the airport. Like, full-on weekend at Bernie Zing, the orchestrator of, like, the worst thing that's ever happened in their lives, and just being like, oh, I'm tired, hello, I'm an LL flight attendant, and they're literally carrying him, like, onto the plane. I mean, like, the story's fucking insane. So they gave him Israel... And they put Eichmann on trial, and he's convicted, and he's hung outside of Tel Aviv. Wow. And the guys who captured him are like, look, far be it for we to celebrate death, but also, um, yeah. The Nazis. The Nazis, man. I'm alive. I'm not. Well,
2: I mean, it, it goes back yeah. to this—the idea we were discussing before about the Constitution. It's not just the Constitution. It's about a just or unjust law. You know, like it's, I remember—I remember being in a in, in class with somebody. I think it was a, I think it was a, a graduate student, and we were talking about all these horrible things that the Nazis had done, and and somebody—I think it was on the Holocaust. Actually, it was a class on the Holocaust, and. Uh, there was there was a, somebody in the class who was saying you know is anybody under the impression that the American army is squeaky clean you know like i've seen catch 22 <laughs> and you know there's a there's a very uh, clear difference uh between what the american army had done sometimes and what the german army was organized for to relate this to is does not does not work at all going back to a just law the american military since the geneva convention instructed their officers and their men how to disobey what they knew to be an illegal order. And every time the American chain of command broke down and an atrocity was committed, including in My Lai in 1967, it was because the men had followed what they knew to be was an illegal order. And William Callie, the son of a bitch lieutenant who gave that order in My Lai, he knew when he told his men to exterminate this village, he knew he was giving an illegal order and he got nothing for it, in my opinion. And his men got nothing for it, even though they knew that by following that order, they were breaking the law as soldiers. It was an unjust Mm -hmm. order. And you as a soldier can say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to follow this order. And even in Nazi Germany, my friend, if you told your superior officer, I do not want to shoot Jews for a living without a single circumstance in the history of the Second World War. The officer said, "Okay, I will reassign you to do something else. Everyone got off scot-free. Yeah, they might have put up with some shit with their friends who did shoot 300 Jews that day, but everyone got off scot-free. And what I expect out of an American soldier is way more than what I expect out of a Nazi soldier it's to look at your officer and say, "You know what I'm not going to do that. That is an illegal order and there's no there's no alternative. they're not going to shoot you and bury you out in the woods. This is not platoon. This is not Sergeant Elias and Sergeant May. That's not real. that's Hollywood with all due yeah. respect oh, yeah. right yeah yep. and and in, in the in the situation in milai, of course there was a there was a soldier on a helicopter who landed the helicopter and turned his gun on his own men and said, stop massacring these villagers or, or I will shoot. And they stopped because they all knew it was an illegal order. There's a difference between following a just law and an unjust law.
11: trial for the murder of six million Jews, Adolf Eichmann takes the stand in his bulletproof dock.
12: Eichmann was head of what is called the Jewish Department in the SS and the Gestapo. In many German documents it was called Operation Eichmann, the murder of the Jews of Europe. Hitler and Himmler and these people who actually made the order to kill all the Jews in 1941. They, of course, were more guilty. But Eichmann was in charge of the whole of the carrying out of the Holocaust. Eichmann, in 1960, was caught by Israeli agents in the Argentine, and there he was brought to Israel. Two days after he arrived in Israel, the Minister of Justice called me and he said, Mr. Bach, I imagine you will be one of the prosecutors in the trial, but would you be prepared also to be in charge of the investigation? The whole world spoke about it in all the newspapers. You could see that Eichmann was proud about anything he did in order to prevent the saving of a single Jew and then they took my mother and she said let us go before her they caught mother and shot her too there was a man in israel i put him on the stage as a witness and then i asked him what happened to your family he said well i i had no idea what auschwitz meant and he said my wife when we came there was sent to the left which was showed afterwards to the gas chambers. And I had a little daughter, two and a half years old. And, of course, they said also to the left. Then they asked me, what was your profession? I said, well, I was an engineer in the Army. So they said to the right, they said wanted to keep him to do some work. And then, who else? I had a boy. How old was he? Thirteen. So the SS commander said, well, I have to talk to the commander-in-chief. So it took a few minutes, and then he said to the boy, run after your mother. And I saw the witness, he was back there, I could see his eyes, and he said, I couldn't see my wife anymore, she was swallowed up in the crowd. I couldn't see my son anymore, he was swallowed up in the crowd. But my little daughter, she had a red coat, and that little red dot, getting smaller and smaller, this is how my family disappeared from my life. At that time, my little daughter was exactly two and a half years old, and I had bought her a red coat two weeks before that. So when the witness said that about the red coat, it suddenly cut off my voice completely. I suddenly couldn't utter a sound. Until this very day, I can be in a restaurant, I can be in a street, And I suddenly feel my heart beating and I turn around and I I see a little boy or a little girl in a red coat.
3: Oh, I know you're ready and you're good, but is everything okay with the family?
2: Oh, yeah. Luke started his he started his sophomore year on Monday. He came up for an elective. He didn't really have any room for anything else on his schedule for a core class. I've got to read you this syllabus that he sent me. He was like, Dad, this class is going to be brilliant. It's a screenshot. i got to share with you. Class 2, The Third Reich and Propaganda, Germany Awake, 90-minute film. Third class, Triumph of the Will, Lenny Riefenstahl, 115 minutes. He's already seen that. Next class, Olympia, Part 1, Riefenstahl, 1938. This says 119 minutes. I think that film is longer. Next class, Hitler Yuga Quex by Hans Steinhoff, 1933. Next one, The Eternal Jew, Fritz Hippler. Next one, Lotz Ghetto, 1992. Next one, You Seuss by Viet Harlan, 1940. Next one, The Old and the Young by Hans Steinhoff, 88 minutes. That's one I actually have not seen. Next one, The Broken Jug, Gustav Uki, 1937. I I didn't even know. I thought that film was destroyed. I had no idea that film was even survived. The next one, The Tunnel by Kurt Bernhardt, 1933. The last two I've seen, Baron Munchausen, 1943, and Kohlberg, 1945, which is the the famous epic film that the Nazis thought, yeah, we can use uh, 20,000 soldiers to shoot this movie instead of fight on the Eastern Front. That's okay. So I, I was quite pleased by this. I was quite impressed that National Socialist Cinema class 20 years after I taught it in college, only two movies on that list have I not seen. So I just kind of, you know, shining the fingernails on my shirt after that.
13: At Leschfeld and later at Passau.
10: 1934, we meet him with the rank of Unterscharführer
13: in the concentration camp of Dachau, which served as a school for all promising SS men. Dachau was the refining crucible, the school of violence and horrors through which future Nazi leaders had to pass. It was there that they were taught the doctrine of hate,
10: were compelled
13: to beat prisoners and put them to death.
8: Uh, I came there with a certain delay. And I arrived there exactly when the uh, extermination action was in full swing. I already said on one occasion how people were standing near the ditches and how they're falling into the ditches as soon as they were shot. And as I also pointed out during my interrogation, I saw a boy, an infant, actually shot in his mother's arms. I had already referred to my reaction then. Here I can establish the date more easily because I remember that I was wearing a great coat at that time and the conclusion which is to be drawn therefrom is that this was winter.
9: Was so not what she expected. She too went expecting a monster. And she heard this man who spoke in platitudes who still, after so many years, spoke what what is always called Nazi-Deutsch, this kind of uh, meaningless officialese, and k- translated his emotional life into cliché after cliché after cliché.
8: When I saw for the first time dead Jews, I was utterly shattered,
9: and uh, this
8: ghastly side had never left me and had a permanent impact on my nerves. It haunted me all the time. But I was compelled. I was in an iron grip of orders to continue.
11: Hannah Arendt saw Eichmann merely as a bureaucratic murderer, incapable of telling right from wrong. Except for an extraordinary diligence in looking out for his personal advancement, she wrote, He had no motives at all, and this diligence in itself was in no way criminal. He would certainly never have murdered his superior in order to inherit his post. He merely, to put the matter colloquially, never realized what he was doing.
8: Unfortunately, I was compelled to do so as a result of my oath of allegiance and loyalty. I had to deal with the technical aspects of the problem.
9: The Origins of Totalitarianism raises a question, particularly at the very end of the book, about the nature of something that she in that book called radical evil. It raises the question and doesn't answer it. What causes, allows people to do the kind of monstrous deeds that were done in this uh, uh, time by these Nazis? Eichmann is an answer uh, to that question, and the answer is a, is a startling one. It's not the radicality of evil like some inborn fault in human nature but in fact what she called banality that is people's capacity for to not think uh, to not question whether the rules of the state are moral or immoral uh, to not question whether the Führer's will is something that everybody ought to just carry out without question she posed a uh, an answer in the Eichmann book to the origin of totalitarianism's question. But what was
8: done was not my doing. I had the feeling of Pontius Pilate I felt that it was not with me that the guilt lay. I felt that I was not guilty because what was being laid down at the panza conference was done by the elite, the popes, as it were, of the state. And I had to toe the line, of course, willy-nilly. This is what I thought uh, in the course of the years uh, which
11: followed... To her critics, these views seemed to show that Arendt had taken Eichmann's defence at face value and that she absolved him of responsibility for his crimes.
13: Of course, being a very original, very important thinker, Hannah Arendt, and she would not be able to, to, uh, to recognise that... Uh, he had reached what he had done by way of thinking, of identifying, perhaps only identifying, perhaps not thinking, but only identifying with a certain political movement. She would probably not recognize the Nazis at all as as an ideology, uh, quite rightfully so, because it is a very confused mishmash of, of all kinds, has no deeper coherence or, or anything but for a man like Eichmann it was a set of ideas, he believed in them and for her he was probably just the petty bureaucrat who had done no thinking at all and was trained to do what he was told to do and, um, and I don't think that was true at all and I, I think that uh, he, um, um, he knew exactly what he was doing And he thought
11: that he was doing the right thing. They all did. In 1963, almost two years after the trial, the New Yorker magazine carried Hannah Arendt's reports from Jerusalem. Protests broke out immediately. Her views were sensationalized. She was seen by some as a Jewish self-hater, and Eichmann, according to one newspaper, was depicted as a man with an unspotted conscience.
9: She knew that her interpretation of Eichmann would be controversial. She expected some controversy. She certainly did not expect what came, which was, as one of her critics put it, a war. And uh, the war was quite unexpected and very painful
12: uh, for her. It was painful for many, not only for her. It was painful for me, for instance, as a very close friend of hers, because I uh, thoroughly disapproved of uh, uh, the whole spirit of her treatment of the Eichmann affair and the kind of theory she developed ad hoc at, to fit the Eichmann case, and um, uh, which I think was um, wrong,
8: wrong-headed. I thought the book was marvelous. I had no... Real criticism of the book, I thought perhaps there was a certain arrogance on her part in, so to speak, personally hanging Eichmann instead of letting the state of Israel hang him. Uh, but uh, aside from that touch of arrogance, I did I, I thought the book was very good. My husband always objected to the phrase the banality of evil. I don't know why he objected to it to this day, but. Uh, I, uh, to me the book was very good, very interesting. Uh, it's uh, And it did not say what people claimed it said. But for some reason the New York Jews, uh, I don't know, maybe the rest of the country too, but I think particularly in New York, wanted to believe that she blamed the Jews for Hitler.
11: Hannah
5: always felt herself to be on the outside. She was never a member of any group or party in the real sense. Uh, she was very proud of being Jewish, but she had a, a great deal of sympathy for Christian thought. Um, at the same time, she had a, de- a great hatred, a great contempt for group thinking. She didn't believe in this sort of thing. And I have to say that, uh, having seen it at firsthand, uh, that it seemed to me, it seemed to a lot of other people, to be a form of mob thinking, the, re- the reaction against the book, which infuriated me because it was so hysterical and so poisonous. You know. um, I think that she invited it in some ways but uh, she didn't deserve it but uh, i have to say too that i was always on her side because she had such immense feeling for all these historical questions you see and um, she had lived those questions after all she had shown her good faith in every possible way you know she never had any illusions about totalitarianism but she was the first
7: person to really declare that for six million people people to be exterminated everybody had to participate in some tacit way that the line between victim and victimizer is a gradual and distinct one, but finally everybody has some relationship. It's not mass collective guilt, but the understanding that the way we conceive of our daily life, the way we conceive of our relationship to politics, the way we conceive of our sense of individual responsibility, all participated to make this possible. We allowed ourselves to believe euphemisms. Uh, We allowed ourselves to sort of accept uh, something that was horrible, by describing it as something that was seemingly acceptable. So instead of moving boxcars of uh, tomatoes, we moved boxcars of people. And uh, by organizing, instead of efficient factory, you organized efficient uh, gas chambers. And uh, by having all the uh, sort of competitive instincts, how can you? make how many chickens grow fast to lay so many eggs, you, you use the same language and same sort of professionalism to ask how quickly can and how rapidly can you gas people in what order of time efficiency, that all the instrumentalities of modernity were put to use and that everybody participated. and was only delighted to, with exceptions.
3: Um, Oppenheimer, come on.
7: Oh, no, before,
2: no, you're not going to get off that easy, sir, because I have one question left for you. All right, one final, final, I swear, last question to close out the last sound bite that I will ever use on the last podcast that I'm working on. Do you <laughs> have any final thoughts, any final thoughts, Hannah Arendt, the specialist or the banality of evil?
3: I appreciate Hannah Arendt better now than I did when I started watching the videos and reading up on her. I appreciate her intellectual curiosity and her ability to say, damn you, this is the truth. And to write it in such a way that you're going, what a sentence here. Oh, okay. And you stop and think, okay. One, she's a woman scaring guys. She's also one of them is frightening. It helps me to understand what she wrote about, What it helps me understand Orwell and other people like him or her, better what they live through. And I reflected on that as I was watching Oppenheimer. Both our noses are bent and bloody. We're still fighting the good fight. <laughs> yeah,
2: and our eyes are bleeding from reading up late at night.
3: <laughs> Got like Jake LaMotta uh, you know, raging Jake bull.
4: I'm oh, not it up
3: <laughs>
2: alright man well you take it easy
3: you too thank you very very much
2: thanks for joining Dave and I as we discussed The Specialist The Eichmann Trial Hannah Arendt and The Banality of Evil you can find the Super 70 Podcast wherever you find podcasts you can find me my books and my blog at www.thatdillandavis.com. I'm also on threads and Litterbox. you can drop me a line at thatdillandavis at gmail.com I read all of your mail no hate mail or anti-Semitic literature please I'm Dylan Davis and thanks for listening to the Super 70
4: Podcast